Hi folks, and welcome to White Collar Week. It's the isolation that destroys us. The solution is in community. Today on the podcast, we have as our guest, Bill Baroni, or as they called him in federal prison, Billy Bridgegate. Bill was arrested, tried, found guilty, and served time for his role in the infamous Bridgegate corruption scandal that destroyed the presidential aspirations of former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie. Bill's conviction was overturned by the United States Supreme Court, and today he is felony-free and talks with us about his journey. We are calling this episode Everything But Bridgegate because Bill can't discuss the nuts and bolts of the scandal due to pending legal matters. But what Bill does share with us is an amazing story of power, abuse of power, ambition, navigation of the criminal justice system as it applies to people prosecuted for white-collar crimes, and ultimate vindication. So coming up, Bill Baroni on White Collar Week. I hope you will join us. Hello, and welcome to White Collar Week, a podcast sponsored by Progressive Prison Ministries, the world's first ministry serving the white collar justice community. I'm Jeff Grant, co-founder and your host. I served almost 14 months in a federal prison for a white collar crime I committed when I was a lawyer. So I know that it's the isolation that kills us and the solution is in community. So let's get started. Hi, folks. Welcome to White Collar Week. We have a very special guest on tonight, Bill Baroni, who you may know from the Bridgegate scandal, but he has an incredible story of uh, navigating the criminal justice system and, of course, being vindicated at the United States Supreme Court. Bill and I talked on the phone a couple of weeks ago, and I just knew I had to have him on the podcast. So, Bill, welcome to uh, White Collar Week. Jeff, how are you? Good, good, good. Um, Bill, why don't we start with kind of tell, give us five minutes or so on your background and how you came into a position to even being in this mess. So, uh, you know, your political uh, story and maybe uh, a little bit about your personal background. Sure. I, I, I sort of dated it April 9th, 2019. So mm-hmm. about 8.30 in the morning on April 9th, 2019. It was a Tuesday morning. It was a, a, a slightly cool day in Western Pennsylvania. And I stood there in my my, my gray sweatshirt and gray sweatpants, and I pushed the button uh, to walk into Loretto Federal Prison uh, in what I had expected at that moment to be an 18-month uh, time there uh, in prison. And that's the moment that you sort of look back, and for me, from central New Jersey, the drive out there was about four and a half hours or so, so we left really early that morning. One of my closest friends, uh, John Holland, uh, former roommate, he and his wife were roommates of mine, drove me out there. I always say, you know, the person who drives you to and picks you up from prison, those are the people you keep around in your life. Those are, you know, you're not going to find a, a more solid guy than John Holland. And, you know, I'm standing there in the parking lot about to walk into federal prison. And you look back in that moment and, you know, how'd your life get there? And I think back on how I got to that point. And, you know, I had gone to law school at the University of Virginia Law School. Uh, I had been practicing law. I started teaching law constitutional law and civil rights and voting rights and election law, education law, and loved it. And I ran for the legislature. I'd moved back to my hometown of Hamilton, New Jersey. And in 2003, I ran for the General Assembly, the lower house of the New Jersey state legislature in a very democratic district. I was running against a democratic incumbent um, and knocked on almost 11,000 doors and got myself elected to the assembly as one of the youngest members of the legislature. And then four years later, I kept knocking on doors and I got myself elected to the state Senate, uh, again, in that same very democratic district. Sure. But I worked really hard and I had a lot of, um, you know, I was a vote, a vote in the Senate for my district. So sometimes I voted with one party and sometimes voted, I was always uh, the people who count these things up, I was, I was the most independent member of the legislature. And uh, I was very proud of that. But when uh, former United States Attorney Chris Christie got elected governor of New Jersey in 2009, um, he asked me and I went to the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey. And the way and people who are not from New York and New Jersey, the Port Authority is a bi-state agency that, over, that oversees all uh, six airports in the New York area, including yeah. like Newark and Kennedy and LaGuardia. The Hudson River crossings, which were, you know, the, the uh, four bridges and two tunnels, yeah. the, the path train system, 
uh, the port itself, um, two bus terminals, um, and uh, the World Trade Center. And two days before I started the Port Authority, CBS News on 60 Minutes, Scott Pelley, did a report that said, and this was in March of 2010, mm -hmm. that the World Trade Center was one big hole in the ground. And one of the things that I wanted to do was do something about that, uh, along with a lot of other people. Sure. And we were able to do that. And that was, for me, a life mission. And so I went to the Port Authority and did things like the World Trade Center and, and a lot of projects. This was an agency. It was a $7 billion agency, 7,000 employees, terrific employees. Mm -hmm. And I was there at the Port Authority. And so when you, you say the World Trade Center, you mean the, the, the terminal underground, that incredible terminal they built? Uh, well, that's one of them. I mean, oh. the Port Authority owned the Twin Towers. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. And uh, both the 1993 attack mm -hmm. and then, of course, September 11th, yeah. the Port Authority lost you know, hundreds of employees along with nearly 3,000 other people. Sure. Um, and it was a sacred mission for the Port Authority to reach the World Trade Center site. Mm -hmm. And that included the 9-11 Memorial and the museum, uh, but it also included the office buildings that were there, including what had been known as the Freedom Tower became One World Trade Center. Sure. And, and I got to be part of the group of people that were dedicated, both New Yorkers and New Jerseyans, to rebuilding that site. And yeah. regardless of everything that took place during Bridgegate, that's always something I'm going to be able to talk about that we were able to accomplish by working together. Republicans, Democrats, people from New York and New Jersey. Sadly, however, in September of 2013, uh, the Bridgegate uh, scandal began. Um, and, and as you and I talked about, because there's some ongoing litigation, can't really go into too many details, but certainly what happened is was very, couldn't have been any more public. You know, I think you Google my name and the word bridge, you get like a million, I, seriously, I think you get like a million hits. Uh, if, if we Google your name without the word bridge, you get a million yeah, hits. You get a million and a half hits. <laughs> uh, so uh, that started September of 13. In December of 2013, uh, I was fired mm -hmm. uh, from Port Authority. In January of 2014, the United States Attorney for the District of New Jersey began a secret grand jury investigation. All grand juries are secret, but secret mm -hmm. grand jury investigation uh, into Bridgegate. And this got an enormous amount of attention because like many high profile political cases or financial cases, as you know, Jeff, from a lot of the people you've talked to in the great group that you have put together, um, you know, there were TV cameras. This was around the clock news. Yeah, I mean, I'm I, sure. I'd go to the gym and I'd look up on the TV and there I was. And uh, it, it was it was it was around the clock. And yeah. I'm, I was a news consumer at the time and I can verify all that. That's for sure. Yeah, sorry for ruining your evening news there. Um, and so in May of 2015, so now again, about a, a year and a half after it began, mm -hmm. uh, after all the uh, hundreds of witnesses and two or three million pages of documents, they, the U.S. attorney decided to, to indict myself and Bridget Kelly, mm -hmm. who had been in the governor's office. Um, and, and that's it. Um, and so that began 15, 2016. Which is amazing to me that's four years ago right now, yeah. literally, as, as you and I are talking in, mm -hmm. in late September of, of 2020, uh, there was a trial, mm -hmm. uh, went on for close to eight weeks or so, yeah. a bit of a blur. And the Friday before the election of 2016, uh, Bridget and I were convicted on nine counts. Yes. Um, and we had been on bail throughout the course of the, of, of, of the investigation and the trial. That continued. We were initially sentenced. I guess. I guess in March of 2017, mm -hmm. our sentence was 24 months. And Bridget's was. Um, I think it was 18. And we appealed immediately to the Third Circuit. Uh, had bail pending appeal. The government, the prosecutors in this case, consented to that, which I thought was uh, both a, a smart thing and a good thing to do. Yeah. Uh, that didn't get argued until the following spring. So I guess March of 2018, mm -hmm. uh, the Third Circuit heard the case. And then uh, a couple of days after Thanksgiving in 2018, the Third Circuit ruled uh, half of the, half of the, 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 the convictions were thrown out mm -hmm. and half were upheld. And I remember that night and I uh, uh, saw the result early in the morning and I went down to Hamilton, New Jersey, where I grew up. My dad and stepmom, dad and June still live and had to make some decisions. 
Um, we sat at, a, at the Outback Steakhouse in Hamilton, New Jersey, uh, over the, the cedar plank salmon and a baked potato. And we just, I had to make a decision about what's next. Yeah. And, you know, there's, you know, the statistics and the folks uh, who are listening to us know and, you know, the odds of the Supreme Court of the United States taking any one particular case are like, smaller than winning the lottery. And, uh, um, and so I had to make a choice and do I just go in and get it started? Uh, or try and hang on and, and see what the Supreme Court does. And for me, given the odds and given the fact that my dad and stepmom, I'm going to be one of the caregivers, I just wanted to get it over with. Yeah, of course. And I think a lot of people that are that go through this process do the same thing, whether that means a decision to plead guilty or to go in like I did. So I got resentenced. Well, we have, we have a lot of people going through that now who yeah. have been on delay because of COVID. Sure. And they're making these decisions and they never know if it's the right decision because uh, there's, no, there's not much in terms of perspective. And then life unfolds as it did for you. And so I uh, made the decision to go in. Bridget, uh, who has young kids, mm -hmm. um, and made, it, made a different decision. So I went and got sentenced uh, again at the end, uh, in, I guess it was March of 2019, and decided to go in and get started. And my sentence went down to 18 months. And it, as I started I, in April, I went into Loretto Federal Prison Camp in Western Pennsylvania, which is a very small federal prison camp next to a very large low, federal low. Now, yeah. the camp is outside the fences and it's outside the, uh, the barbed wire. But there is that moment when it, back in April 9th, when you walk into the prison, you say, okay, I'm going to spend 18 months here. What I didn't expect, uh, no one expected. Uh, you know, I had told my, uh, my appellate lawyer, who I actually know from the first day of law school. We, I, we sat next to each other the first day of law school. No kidding. The fir first day of law school, Mike Levy and I sat next to each other. And, uh, you know, there's that joke, you know, that, that, that you know, law, the law school dean on the first day of law school says, look to your right, look to your left, and then it won't be here. At the that's, end of law that's true, the too. The University of Virginia Law School, it's like, look to your right, look to your left. One will defend the other in the Supreme Court. Um, so uh, Mike, who's a, a fantastic, extraordinary lawyer at Sidley, uh, Austin, took the case to the Third Circuit, won part of it there. And I said, Mike, look, I'm going to go in. I'm going to get started. Uh, it's not good. But what would be worse is if something happened to dad in June while I was away and couldn't be there to help. Exactly. That's a good decision. And it was a good decision. I don't yep. regret that decision yeah. regardless of what happened. But yep. you know, three months later, at the end of June, uh, it was a Friday. Mm-hmm. And the Supreme Court was the last day of the term of the Supreme Court. Uh, so they, they announced that they had accepted Bridget Kelly and my case for appeal. And uh, two days later, the following Monday, uh, the district court judge, Judge Wigginton, ordered me released from federal prison. And John Hollop drove all the way back out there to Loretto, Pennsylvania, <laughs> and picked me back up three months later. And I, you know, I look at pictures before I went in and after I got out, and I had certainly lost some weight when I was there. I was there. Yeah. So, um, so, but, but you had to have been like a double celebrity because not only was it the bridge case, um, issue, but now you actually got, um, up on cert to the Supreme court. Sure. Uh, yeah. So the, the cert got granted on Friday, uh, and there was some saying it, it got news that it got granted, uh, and sort of the word, you know, and, and, and you know, this, you know, people in prison look for hope. Yeah. And there's a lot of guys who I was there with. Uh, who also had appeals, you know, in the in process. And so when something good happens to one person, you know, in the community there at Loretto or anywhere else, that was good for everybody. So yeah. people genuinely, and, you know, so the following Monday, uh, you know, the, the, the government, the prosecutors uh, consented to me getting out, which made the process much quicker. Of course. Um, and I guess about 11 o'clock in the morning, Judge Wigginton signed the order but then it has to go through the bureaucracy of the Bureau of Prisons, got to go down to Texas and it's got to come back. And yeah. this was days leading up to July 4th. So I had this, you know, this thought in my head of, you know, I'm going to be there on July 4th. And people were genuinely, the people I was there in Loretto with, people who I taught GED classes with, people who I taught adult ed classes with, were genuinely, everybody was genuinely happy for me. And I was grateful for that. Uh, really was. It was a very special time. Um, although I remember... Uh, being in the TV room at Loretto. And, you know, so when I got to Loretto, people really didn't quite, and I, of course, you never talk about, you know, you never brag. You're, you're just yeah. like everybody else. I was not going to act like some stuck up celebrity. And I was, I was there to do my time like everybody else. 
Uh, but about two weeks after I got there, Bridget was sentenced. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was on TV. So, you know, so this is right after I got there. And just as I'm about to get out, I'm in the TV room with some of the guys. And I look up on the TV at about two in the afternoon or so. And there's my picture. I guess it was CNN or something. And it was like Bridgegate figure released. And I look around and I've, I'm still there. And so I, I, it was one of those, one of those moments, like I'm not quite gone yet. Um, and a couple, about a couple hours later, I, I, I went home and uh, ended up back in Hamilton, New Jersey that night. Um, you know, three months after having spent three months in Loretto and, and I'm sure we're going to talk about that, but uh, you know, and then, you know, January 8th of 2020, so that was in July of 19, yeah. 2020, the Supreme Court, January 14th, excuse me, January 14th, the Supreme Court heard our case at, the, at this was before Corona time. Mm-hmm. So we were some of the last cases that were actually heard in person. Yeah. And, you know, to go and sit in the, the you, know, whereas, you know, as a lawyer and a law professor, I never imagined my first appearance in the United States Supreme Court would be as a defendant. Um, well, you, but you know, life comes at you fast. Yeah. Had, had you been a member of the court? I was not a member of the bar of the Supreme mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Mike was. Thankfully, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, did a magnificent job, as did Bridget's lawyers. Mm-hmm. Um, and we felt good coming out based, mm-hmm. based on the questions, but you never know. Like, yeah. you never know what's going to happen. And then you just wait. And you, you know, every, you know, on Mondays and Thursdays, you wait for the Supreme Court. And the, you don't have any heads up. It's not like they call you the night before and say, by the way, Bill, we're putting our decision out tomorrow. You just right. don't know. And mm-hmm. we wait until, I guess it was May 7th, which was now in Corona time. Yeah. And I'm sitting in this very seat in this very apartment at this very computer at 10.01 and re-clicking and reloading on the Supreme Court website. And there That's it was. Right. They unanimously overturned uh, our, the remainder of our convictions. So it, uh, and that was in May. So it took uh, almost seven years. Um, mm-hmm. I like to say it was seven years and one grand jury and one trial, 12 jurors, uh, nine justices, um, and three months in federal prison. But that's, that's what led me uh, to, to where I am now. And, and the decision made sense. I, I, thought it was, I thought it was ultimately a very practical, pragmatic decision about federal power in state politics. Oh, the Supreme Court decision. Yeah. Uh, certainly. I mean, you know, we look at uh, the news today. Mm-hmm. You think of all the cases that are decided five four by the Supreme Court, right? And you hear about the liberal wing of the party or the of the, of the court, the mm-hmm. conservative wing of the of the court. Uh, but this got nine votes, mm-hmm. and you know, this was a decision that got uh, written by Justice Kagan, mm-hmm. often considered on the, the on the liberal wing of the party, yeah, the liberal wing of the court. Um, but it also had Justice Gorsuch and Justice Kavanaugh, yeah. Um, and I think what it showed, and this has been 30, you know, 20 or 30 years of mm-hmm. case law, uh, including Governor McDonald's case and now our case, yeah. where the Supreme Court was saying to federal prosecutors uh, to be careful about the criminalization of politics. And uh, I think that this was a continuation in a line of cases. Uh, and you could hear it from the justices' questions uh, yeah. on the bench that day back in January. Uh, that they had some real concerns about that. I was very fortunate, you know, as I was getting ready to go into prison. Mm-hmm. Um, I talked to a number of people who had been in government or politics or similar to it to get me ready to go in. Yeah, you know, for example, Governor McDonald from Virginia, whose case was also overturned, his conviction was also overturned by the Supreme Court. Also, you know, he never had to go in; he stayed out mm-hmm. uh, in the process. Um, was extremely helpful. In fact, he filed a friend of the court brief. Uh, with the Supreme Court to, tr- to ask them to take our case and overturn the conviction. And I think that's what's really important about what you've put together with Progressive Prison Ministries um, is a group of people from across the geographic spectrum, across the political spectrum, people who've done white collar cases. I've, you know, I've listened to a number of your podcasts um, and I know you've the, 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 the wonderful support group that you do the weekly, uh, the weekly calls with because, you know, when you go through this, uh, when you go through something this difficult, you know, there's the great, I'm, I'm a dual American and Irish citizen. There's a great poet, William Butler Yeats, who has a poem that ends with, you know, all's, you know, all's changed, changed utterly. Life just changed for me that mo- the morning of people say, oh, your life changed when you were convicted. I said, no, my life changed when I walked into prison. Yeah. 
Uh, and and it, it changed because it gave me an entire different perspective. You know, I was a policymaker. I was voting on laws. I was, you know, as a senator, as an assemblyman. But uh, the, the being in prison and seeing what that was, and for me, it, the decision to go into prison, and I know a lot of people face this choice, right? Their lawyers will sit them down and say, you know, here's what the government has. And the government will call them in and say, you need to cooperate or you need to plead guilty. Or their lawyers will say, if you plead guilty, your sentence will be 24 months. But if you go to trial, it could be much greater than that. Yeah. And people have, people have to make those tough choices. And, and, and what did your lawyer tell you that the trial penalty could be if you chose that route? You know, it was difficult. I don't remember having a specific conversation for, mm -hmm. for you know, for me. And the, the, you know, obviously, every from federal criminal trial, nearly every federal criminal trial, they have to offer you plea, and they and they didn't mind. And that's yeah. not news. But I remember my father, Bill Senior. Um, you know, my dad's a guy who grew up in the South Bronx, mm -hmm. never got a chance to go to college, went into the the military, mm -hmm. um, and we had a lot of discussions about to take a plea? Do you try and take a plea? And my father would say over and over again, we don't plead guilty. We don't play. Of course, I said, dad, we don't go to prison. Neither. Um, and, um, but that, it would have broken his heart. But yeah. a, lot of my, a lot of people I was in Loretto with and people that I've talked to um, uh, through your organization and, and others who have to make that difficult decision. For me, um, the decision to whether to go in or keep fighting, I said, well, I can do both. Mm -hmm. I can go in and start getting these months over with. But at the same time, I told Mike, my appellate lawyer, who I've known yeah. from high school, let's keep the Supreme Court appeal going. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it, because for me, you know, I, somebody's going to take care of dad in June. Mm -hmm. and that's going to be me. You know, and Bridget, Bridget had kids uh, in middle school, I guess, at the time, middle and high school, and then one in college at the time. Um, and her decision was equally smart. She's very smart. She's a terrific yeah. uh, friend. And, uh, and you know, if she could stay out and to, to be there for her kids, and it worked out for both of us. And I don't, I don't regret, look, I wish it never had happened. I wish I never had to go to prison. But I don't regret that decision to go in and get it over with. Because for me, um, you know, there's nothing more important than family and, and yeah. taking care of dads. And I think you played the odds, right? And, yeah. And how close were you and Bridget? throughout all of this, your attorneys working together. Um. You know, it's interesting and people find that, you know, we were convicted of, of some of the, the charges we were convicted of included conspiracy. Mm -hmm. We had never actually had a full conversation ever. We were never on text messages together during that there were evidence that was introduced. We were never on emails together that was introduced during the trial. Um, we had never, we, I think the most we'd ever spoken was she said hello to me at an event once. Like we never dealt with each other. Uh, when she was in the governor's office at the Port Authority, um, our first even basic introductory conversation was the day we were both arraigned and sitting in federal court. That's amazing. Um, and But yes, we developed a very good friendship from there. I think part of it is the fellow traveler. Yeah, of course. Uh, you know, we're going through this very mm -hmm. difficult thing together. We, you know, you know what it feels like mm -hmm. to go through the exact same thing. But, you know, obviously, Bridges lawyers were extraordinary lawyers, mm -hmm. and Mike Critchley. My team of lawyers, led by Mike Baldessari and Jen Mara, worked very closely together, just as when they went to the Court of Appeals, Bridget's appellate lawyer, Yakov Roth, and mine, Mike, Mike Levy, and you have to do that. But on a personal level, you know, Bridget and I were going through something together, very, very hard, and there were certainly nights after the trial was over, as we were going through the appeal process before I went into Loretto, that you know, we'd, we'd sit and we'd talk. It was hard. I mean, everybody who has gone through this has a different version, but it's really hard. Um, and, and your names are linked together forever now. That's just yeah, I mean, the way it works. Absolutely. And we, will yeah. be, we will be linked forever. We will be in each other's obituary. Yeah, of course. That's right. And no matter what other things, hopefully great things that she does or I do, mm -hmm. um, that will always be part of our life. And, and accepting that is difficult, right? Yeah. I mean, accepting that, you know, you, all of us who I'm sure people will listen to the call and go on the groups who've been through this process. Mm -hmm. Your life is going in one direction mm -hmm. and then something happens yep. and it goes in a fundamentally different, like I said, changed utterly. Everything is different from that point on. Yeah, we, we talk about the universality of these, of these things all the time, whether it's a divorce or a death of a child, uh, things just happen. And um, 
I think that you've gone through this with an amazing amount of uh, grace and, and dignity. But I, I, Jeff, I have, to, I have to say thank you for saying that. But I must tell you that the credit for that really does go to the people who sort of kept me lifted up mm-hmm. during these seven years. Uh, and, you know, anybody who's a political person can tell you when something like this happens, a lot of people run away. Yeah. I mean, a vast majority of people who I knew in politics disappeared. Like I, you know, just, I was gone. But then there were other people who ran towards me that, you know, you wouldn't necessarily have expected. I wouldn't have expected who called and reached out or emailed. How can they help? And that's what I know you do. And that's what I do now when I see somebody going through something like this. It's the same with, as you were saying, a sickness and illness and death. Um, And those are the people who keep you lifted up. Um, And including when I was, when I was in prison. The letters, the emails, people writing meant, meant so much uh, to well, me. Just this afternoon, you reached out to me and asked me to connect you with another group member because uh, you had something in common and uh, you could share information together. Yeah, as, as somebody I know who's uh, going to be going into a, to a federal prison in, 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 in the South, and I wanted to connect, be able to connect him with somebody who'd been yeah. there. because. Mm-hmm. For me, that was one of the most helpful things is because I had so much time between my conviction and ending up showing up, I guess it was probably almost three years, two and a half time. So I did a lot of conversations with people who'd been to a variety of of, uh, federal prison camps to learn about them, to learn what life was. My goal was to do everything I could to be as prepared as I could emotionally um, with knowledge Mm -hmm. about what I was facing. It's how I did my career in politics and how I work at the Port Authority is to become as informed as I possibly could. And it was the same thing. Uh, and that's why these kind of groups and discussions are so important. And I think it's why people like you and, and others, you know, in doing these kind of things and reaching out to people uh, really make a difference because for a lot of folks, for everybody, you didn't expect to have that moment walking into a federal prison. And it was the preparation that I was able to do and that I'm now helping others do, um, which makes a real difference in, in a very difficult time in your life. When you walk in that door, you're, you're alone and naked. That's the way it is. Absolutely right. And a few minutes later, you are literally alone and literally, naked. Literally alone and naked. Then you go, you go from the idea to the reality. So tell us um, a little bit about your, um, your time in prison, what you learned. How was it to uh, be in that kind of a community? Um, surely different than, it's different for everybody than they expect. And what it was like to uh, get visits and um, and kind of merge those two worlds um, at, at a critical time in your life. Sure, I mean it, it. You never, you can never be fully prepared. But I, I've been prepared as much as I could, and I walk into Loretta, and almost immediately, and everybody I've ever talked to who've gone into any fa- facility, certainly any federal prison camp, have the same experience. I was there a half minute standing by my bunk in that green jumpsuit, temporary uniform they give you and those terrible shoes. And within minutes, two guys were standing by the bunk that I was having just been assigned to. Yeah. And a guy comes over to me, a guy named Bobby Dottillo, who's become an amazingly dear friend, Mm. also from New Jersey, had no idea who I was. Yeah. um, And came over to me and right away made friends. And uh, he welcomed me and other people. Uh, yeah, they bring you toothbrush and toothpaste and food and and and, shower, and shower shoes. Very critical. Very critical. Shower, shower shoes, the most important yeah. thing. I've got to have shower shoes. And, uh, and 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 just like people had told me, people were really look out for you right away. And Bobby took me downstairs. We were very close to dinner, um, three o'clock, three thirty, whatever it was. And mm-hmm. said, he said to I me, mean, "You're going to sit there. That's going to be your seat for your entire time here in Loretto." And it was. And, you know, I had gotten some really good advice to uh, get involved in uh, religious, the religious uh, Bible study nice. religious services, mm-hmm. um, and which I did uh, that first night. Mm-hmm. The next morning, I immediately started going to the workout group in the morning because I was, I was, gonna, I was not going to let these 18 months, turned out to be three months, but I was not going to let these 18 months change me. In the sense of I was going to work out and I was going to teach classes if I could, and mm-hmm. I was going to do the things that I had prepared for. Mm-hmm. It really was the people that the guys who were there in Loretto who welcomed me um, and allowed me to to, to 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 survive. So I was there about a week and a half, about a week and a half, 
And as anybody who's gone through this knows, for visitors, your parents, uh, spouse, or kids can come pretty pretty quick. They get on your visitor list pretty quickly, especially yeah. if you're in your pre-sentencing report. Mm-hmm. Other people have to fill out a one-page form. There's a little bit of a background check. But I was there about a week and a half, and I was doing fine. I mean, it's prison. It's not good, right? I mean, you're in prison. You can't leave. Mm-hmm. You're in bunk beds with, you know, I guess we had about 80 guys in Loretto at the time. And, you know, you're getting counted twice twice a day. And it's a, it's a transition. It was a transition. It was hard. I wasn't mm-hmm. home. I wasn't with my friends. I wasn't with my family. But I was doing fine because of the people I was surrounded by were really taking care of me. And like we do both in and now, as, as, as what you show, we, even afterwards. But so dad and June were going to come visit. They were going to drive out to visit. And visits become so vitally important because mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a link to the outside world. It's recognition that you're going to return to the outside world, right? Whether it's 18 months or a lot longer. Mm-hmm. That life exists again, and you're going to be part of so these visits matter. So dad and June drove out. They drove out the Friday night before. I talked to them that night, and they were staying at the Courtyard by Marriott in Altoona, Pennsylvania. I said, great. I talked to them. I said, don't forget, visiting, I think it was 8.30 to 2.30. Okay. Yeah. Oh, my father's like, absolutely. I said, dad, get here about 8.15. Oh, we have the direct. We printed out the direct. Okay, pop, get here about 8.15. When you get here, this way we can spend 8.30 to 2.30. I said, but pop, at 9.30... They do a count of every inmate in the whole, on a Saturday, every inmate, 10 o'clock, they do count every inmate in the whole country. So at 9.30, they put a freeze on coming in to visit. Right. So if you're in by 9.30, if you're in before that, we can sit in the visiting room and visit all the way to 2.30. But mm-hmm. you're not there by 9.30. Uh, they make you wait. I have to go back to my bunk and get counted. Oh, no, Bill. We'll, we'll be there. My father's very prompt. Mm-hmm. A- and I, I, 8.30 comes around. I'm sitting there. I've got my green uniform on, right? I got my, my ID card. You have your ID with you. And, and the way Loretto is, is you sort of sit in one room and then they call the guys in as their family members, 830, right. 845. Right. So, so you, so you can't go into the, into the visiting room before your family does. You're, Correct. you're in a different room. That's right. right. They come in they, the way Loretto was a lot of places. They go into the, the same door I walked into on that first day. They go in, they go through a metal detector. Right. And oddly enough, they go back outside and walk across to the, to the camp and they go in the visiting room. Right. And they call you. So 8.45, other guys are getting called in for their visit. Nine o'clock, no dad. And this is very unusual. And I start thinking, of, like, the thing that I worried about most when I went into Loretta was not my safety. I knew I could do the time. It would be hard. Mm-hmm. It would be very hard, but I could do it. I worried about what if something happened to dad in June? What if they got sick? What if they got hurt? What if I couldn't be there to help them mm-hmm. for these 18 months? So there it all comes together that Saturday morning. And there's no debt. Was there an accident? Did they get lost? They can't call me. Mm-hmm. 9.15. I am now, in, I have not been in this kind of anxiety, including my first hours in prison, than I am right now. Truly anxiety. Other the guys are like, Bill, are you okay? I said, no, I'm not okay. I don't know where my dad is. 9.30 comes around. No debt. I am in full panic. So I go, and we have to go now back. They, they, you know, they did the recall. So you had to go back to your bunk. I did a, walked over to the phones and I called dad's cell phone. He picks the phone. He's like, hey, Bill. I'm like, Hey, Pop, where are you? He says, I'm in the parking lot. I'm like, what are you doing in the parking lot? He said, well, we just got here and they just shown the sl- uh, shut the visiting down. I said, oh, I know that, Pop, but I thought you were getting here at 830. He said, oh, yeah. When we came downstairs to come over there this morning, you know, they have a breakfast buffet at the courtyard. I said, oh, I, I said okay. He said, and, it, and he said what my father would say, and maybe every 70-something-year-old dad anywhere would say. He said, it came with the room. So, of course, you have to stop. I mean, you know, I've got 18. Mike can come anytime to visit me. I'm mean, actually, in the truth, I mean, and, and I, you know, the last visit was actually at the, the Saturday after that Friday when the Supreme Court took the case. And uh, Dad and June drove out with another family that I've known since I was a kid. And mm-hmm. It was very different. They were already on the road when the court took the case. Wow. And uh, so, it was a very different visit. It was a very joyful visit. I knew yeah. Out, the government had consented by then and working on all the paperwork. Mm-hmm. So we're sitting outside on a picnic table, and Loretto's got these picnic tables that you can visit. Sure. And having a wonderful visit, my father says to me, basically, he says, "You know what? The only downside of you getting out is that we never got to visit the September 11th memorial in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, which is very close to where we were." And I looked at him. I said, "Would you like me to stay?" I mean, I, I, I could call the lawyer. I call Mike, call the lawyer up, and say, "You know what? Never mind. Dad wants to go down. I'll just stay here for a couple more months." Um, but it tells you how important visits are. And, uh, um, 
it, 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 one of the things that has been a real thing that I've worked on, you know, a number of guys I was there with, uh, families could not afford to come to Western Pennsylvania. Yeah, of course, yeah. A, a, a guy I was very close with, uh, uh, family lived in Baltimore, Maryland. Mm -hmm. I think he had a nine-year sentence or something. Mm -hmm. and he hadn't seen his family in five years, mm -hmm. just couldn't afford it. Or mm -hmm. one guy uh, down in, uh, was sentenced in Miami, lived, his family lived in Miami. He was all the way up, he was sent all the way up to near Pittsburgh. Yeah. And they couldn't afford it. They ended up having to rent a room out in the house just to try and pay for a ticket. So it's one of the things I've been working on is trying to yeah. help folks in that situation. Uh, yeah. Who, I, I, you know, I, I, I was in uh, Allen Woodlow. Sure. And uh, I was in there with uh, uh, a lot of gangbangers from Baltimore and from uh, Pennsylvania cities and learned about parts of life I never would have known about but for this experience. So... Uh, not that I'm recommending it to anybody, but you certainly, uh, it was certainly eye opening. Well, you know, I think you may have experienced. It. I'll take many of the guys I was in Loretto with over many of the people I worked in politics with. Any <laughs> day, <laughs> that's awesome. Any day. <laughs> so um, we only have a few more minutes because I know you're uh, um, you're on a hard stop. So tell us, um, tell me where you are now what you're what you're doing for a living what you're uh what you want to be doing what's what's your uh what's your plan now it, it, this is an odd time in life right so very rarely do you go into federal prison get out of federal prison win in the supreme court uh i've been fortunate to get to my law license in um, and i'm still figuring out what to do next mm -hmm. honestly but I'm doing some, some work with some folks who had been in prison, um, doing some business with, with business development with them. But one of the things that I really care a lot about, and it's one of the reasons I was so glad, Jeff, you and I had the opportunity to meet. When you go through something like this, as I said before, you're chained. And for me, one of the things that I believe that all of us who've gone through it and I've seen it, you know, I, I, you know, I, again, I was a po policymaker. You know, I, I saw people and, you know, cops good and robbers bad. And, and I think cops are good. And I think that robbers are bad. But one of the things I learned was the system sometimes let people fall through the cracks. And yeah. that's one thing I didn't really appreciate as much when I was a policy. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that one of the things we all owe it to people who are still there is do everything we can to help people. And sometimes that just means, you know, answering your phone calls. Sometimes that means helping people get prepared to go in. Sometimes that means like what you're doing so well is bringing together people who have been through it because, you know, I, I was fortunate. I got out, Supreme Court overturned my conviction. Um, and, but it doesn't take away the experience I had in Western Pennsylvania uh, or you had in Allenwood or someone had down in Montgomery or anywhere else across the country. Sure. And for me, and everybody's different, you know, some guys get out and never again want to think a darn thing about it. Mm -hmm. I respect that. But for me and, and the, people who are, the people who I had the opportunity to spend time in prison with, I learned a lot from, learned about a lot about myself, a lot about the system, um, a lot about the system that doesn't necessarily treat people equally, you know, and, and I was very fortunate. You know, I had some of the best lawyers at some of the greatest law firms in America working for me. You know, you're, you're a friend, you're a kid from the Bronx. It's a tough hill. Yeah, sure. Tough shot. And mm -hmm. I think we all owe it to both look at, and I, I give both Republicans and Democrats in Washington, this is bipartisan, a lot of credit for the first step back. It's just the beginning. Yeah. But I think it's done a lot. And, and you know, I'm mean, talk to people, the first step back in prison is a life is a lifesaver because people are taking the classes. They're trying to figure out the counts, trying to get home quicker. Yeah. Uh, for me, part of what I do next, and I'm not sure everything I do next, is to help uh, do the things we can to reform the system, the system, everything from the probation system, uh, the system of, of, of the plea bargaining system. Uh, but more than anything else, it's helping guys when they get out that I've been spending a lot of time. So uh, is, is, is there a book in your future? Is there politics in your future? Well, those are two very different questions. Um, uh, yes, there's a book in my future, which I assure you, Jeff, that I will come on the White Collar Week podcast to promote, and I know that you will do everything you can to tell everyone to buy my book. I, I am, 
I, I, I am a shill for people's books. There's no question. This is what I've always wanted is a shill. This is what I've always wanted to be. Uh, I left politics to find a shill. The, um, uh, so I am writing a book. The book, it, it, it discusses Bridgegate. Uh, the current working title is From Bridge to Bars. Mm. It discusses Bridgegate because uh, it has to, right? It's like, Mrs. Lincoln, how was the show? I mean, you have to discuss it. It's got to be Googleable, otherwise they don't find you, right? Exactly. Mm-hmm. And, and, but it's, uh, the real discussion is what life in going into preparing for being in getting out and surviving the prison experience uh, for me and some of the, we've touched on some of it, but some of the things that you go through. Because, um, you know, you've got about 200,000 people in the federal criminal uh, uh, BOP system and then, you know, 10, 20 times that in the state system. Yep. And, you know, people make mistakes. I made mistakes. You, you made mistakes. I've, you know, you've talked about that before, but we don't lose our humanity. And I think that everything we can do for each other, those of us who've gone through this, uh, that I that I want to do. So I'm going to continue that. I'm going to talk about that in the book. I'm not sure. I'm not sure how some people are going to like what I write in the book, but uh, certainly it's going to be a, uh, it's going to be a truthful account of what life was like over those those seven years. But in a bigger way, it really is a statement about what we as people who've gone through this are going through. Um, and I'm just grateful for the people that I, that helped me get ready. Um, I, I must've talked, I'd say Jeff, I probably talked to a dozen or more people who've been, who went to different federal prisons, sure. um, and a lot of commonalities, a lot mm-hmm. of things, they all say the same thing about mm-hmm. just get through every day, mm-hmm. you know, just get through today. They, they say sometimes the weeks drag and the months fly. Um, they talk about, you know, doing, you know, going to the, uh, the Bible study, going to religious services, re- re- regardless of your faith tradition. Yep. Um, and, you know, I, I am a, I'm Catholic, but I had the great blessing of going to many services uh, of my, some of the guys led by the guys in the Protestant faith tradition. Sure. Um, and, and the Bible study in the, within the Protestant faith tradition. Actually, just last week, two weeks ago now, I went out to, I went back out to Western Pennsylvania I was invited by some of the ministers who used to minister to me in Loretta, a yeah. different faith tradition, mm-hmm. but they were, they, they were three people who came in on Thursday nights, Andy, Randy, and Ruth. Um, they would come in on Thursday nights before Corona time yeah. and they would minister to the guys. And so uh, Andy and Randy asked me to come out because, you know, there's this, there's really, I don't know, this is just silly. This really bothers me that, you know, People in the prison system, you can have a minister or an imam or a rabbi be your spiritual guide for 18 months or 10 years or 20 years. And when you get out, you can't talk to them anymore. Yeah, you're, you're cut off. Right. And that's, to me, that's just crazy. And it's something we should have our state and federal regulators and legislators look to change. And that's, but one of the things that because I'm this weird, I was in prison, but everything was overturned. I was able to go out. So I went out to the uh, Somerset, Pennsylvania, great town, mm-hmm. and met with, I don't know, a dozen or so uh, religious leaders um, about what they can be doing. Yeah, that's great. We just service people. And I think that's one thing we, we're all called to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm, I'm going to continue to do that over these months and continue. And I'm so grateful to you for inviting me to join and be a part of the discussion groups. And I also want to be a resource for people. That's why I you connected me earlier today. I want to be a resource for folks is this is a really hard time in life, mm-hmm. right? You think, and you mentioned something before losing a family member, a serious illness, you know, but you know, each and every day that I would go to trial now, gosh, four years ago and see my dad and stepmom sit there in the courtroom day in and day out and see their son put on trial. Yeah. It's hard. That morning in April of 2019, when John came to pick me up, uh, out three thirty, four o'clock, something like that in the morning, and seeing them standing on the front porch of the house that I grew up in, seeing their son drive away in a gray sweatshirt and gray sweatpants to show up in federal prison, it takes a real toll not just on us, you and I, yeah, but on our families and what they have to go through, uh, and our friends what they had to go through. Yeah, I want to I want to go back to a point you made that I think is. Uh, important and that's when people get out of prison they're really cut off from a lot of support and um 
because people who are on uh, probation aren't allowed to uh, communicate with other felons. Um, we, we've been able to cut through a lot of that. Um, one, because um, I'm a reverend, so that helps. And um, communications with, with me are, are subject to state pri uh, privilege laws. But also because we've been doing it long enough that the probation offices themselves know about us. And they understand our motives and what we do and, we, and that we, uh, we understand the limits of what we do as well, which is important. But um, to come, come out of isolation into prison and then back into isolation that's enforced by the government is, is really cruel. And it, it perpetuates uh, a, um, a feeling state that could lead to a lot of other problems in life. And what we want to do is lift people up, obviously, and, and have, them, um, have them start to um, progress down a healthy road. So I was, um, I was very fortunate, you know, I, again, given the, the oddity of the getting out after three months, and, mm -hmm. you know, the, the guys who I knew uh, in Loretto who left, um, you know, the time was, their time was up, the first step back came in and they mm -hmm. left, went over to the Altoona bus station. You know, and got on, you know, got on a bus and went to their to their yeah. halfway house. And they get back to the halfway house, um, and they're told to go get a job. Mm -hmm. But how many places when they go to get a try and get a job, they ask, "Are you a felon?" Or the questions on the application. Just last week, when I was in Somerset, one of the people were talking about uh, they had suggested go to a fast food restaurant and get a job, and they went to the fast food restaurant and filled out the application. Got to the question about, "Are you a convicted felon? Or did you have a criminal past?" admitted, you know, filled out the form honestly, and they wouldn't hire. Of course. You have difficulty getting a job. Hard. And if you can get a job and you start to get a paycheck from that job, you can't get a bank account in many cases. Mm -hmm. Well, banks have closed your bank account. It won't let you open a, a, a checking account or a savings account. You can, in some places, you, it takes it more difficult to vote or, or serve your community. Mm -hmm. this, this system's not working, right? Yeah. That's not a system that works. I, you know, I, you, I think... The, the many, many people believe we should change the system. Mm -hmm. But when people do something wrong and, you know, you've gone to prison, you served your time, you served probation. Um, I think people think you should be able to move on with your life. I, we agree. Absolutely. And I think that's why your organization and the progressive prison mm -hmm. ministries is so important because it reminds people when they get out that there really is an other side. There really is, the, the, the after the change, you know, and it changed utterly. Well, what's the change? And, and it, it, you're, you talk a lot about isolation, right? It's, you know, you're, you're in the middle of a high-profile case or a case. You're, many people in your life disappear. A lot of other people in your life you're not allowed to talk to because they're also potentially part of the case. I mean, course, I had yeah. many people in my life I couldn't talk to. So your world gets smaller and smaller. Then you go to prison. Then you come out of prison. And people have difficulty getting a job. People have difficulty getting licenses in some states. People have difficulty getting apartments in some in some. Sure. Um, and we, as those of us who've been through it, I think we owe a debt to fellow travelers, and uh, to help get people get help get people ready, help people when they're in, mm -hmm. and help people when they get out. Um, and that's something that a lot of the people who are part of your organization, our organization, your organization, uh, are committed to. And I'm certainly among that group. Well, Bill, um, I'm so grateful that you, uh, you came on the podcast and you're willing to tell the story. Um, I know that, um, there are big things in store for you so long as you, uh, uh, retain this uh, authenticity and this, uh, this willingness to help um, because not everybody can do it. It's, it as, as you said earlier, there are a lot of people who just want to put it behind them. And um, I understand I, that. Of course. I, I, yeah. I, yeah. I, I, we're all, on, we're all on our own journeys in some ways. The difference is through, you know, we're on these journeys. Um, you know, it's important that we, see fellow travelers. Yeah. I've had people say to me, uh, especially people who had disappeared for a few years, mm -hmm. say to me, why do you still do that? I mean, you, 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 you know, you, your conviction was overturned. You were vindicated. Yeah. I said, you know, just as I knocked on those 11,000 doors when I ran for the assembly back 2003, uh, it, this is a different version of service. 
um, and and just as you do. I mean, mm-hmm. I goodness, I get more emails from you around the clock. I think you're single-handedly keeping the email system afloat. <laughs> Sorry about that. No, don't apologize. It's great. I mean, it's like you're doing you're doing group you're doing these podcasts. You're doing a wonderful once a week discussion group from people from all over the country can zoom in, call in, mm-hmm. um, and, and get support that you're not alone, you're not isolated, you're not by yourself. And you're also, we're doing, you know, that, that somebody's about to go in, right? And they need that help. We're called on that. We're called, regardless of your faith tradition, right? You can be Christian, you can be Jewish, you can be Muslim, you can be Sikh, you could be Hindu, you could be anything. Or no, or no, or no faith or no, at all. No, but every faith around the world, everything mm-hmm. always has something in the faith that talks about visiting, assisting, supporting the prisoner. Yeah. We're all called on to do mm-hmm. that. And I think regardless of your faith tradition or no faith, tradition, mm-hmm. this is a human thing to do to help each other out. And then, and I'm just grateful that, that, that you and I have become friends um, and that I can serve as a, as, as a resource to people the way you've been serving as a resource to people. Well, thank you. Thank you, Bill. That, that's beautiful. And uh, I'm, I'm really glad to know you and to, uh, and to walk this path with you. So thank you, my friend. Thank you. Thank you. And I'm grateful for, for you and for everybody and, and uh, keep up the good work. And I assure you, I will be back to take you, take you up on that offer to show for the book. I mean, Absolutely I you, will. Given the amount of emails you send out, goodness sakes, you've got to have I'm going to, I mean, I, I can go to a book publisher and say, look, I got one guy who's going to, you know, he's got you know, 100,000 people on his email list and he emails every 27 minutes. It's, a, it's actually pretty close to that. <laughs> I think the phone just, I don't know how you did it. You sent me seven emails as we're doing this podcast. I don't know how you do these things. I feel like, a, I feel like, a, I feel like the, the, the Houdini of a, a prison. Book. All right, Bill, thank you so much you. and have a, have, a, have a wonderful night and um, we'll be in touch soon. Thanks, Jeff. Be well. You too. Bye. Thank you for joining us on White Collar Week, sponsored by Progressive Prison Ministries. You can learn more about us on our website, prisonist.org. That's prisonist, like feminist. And please remember to rate, review, and share this podcast so that families suffering in silence can find us if they need us. See you next time.